welcome to the Alfred's Emergency Medicine Journal Club podcast. My name is Ana McSivna, Emergency Medicine Registrar, and I'm joined by Professor Peter Cameron, Academic Director at the Alfred Hospital Emergency and Trauma Centre, and Divya Karnan, Consultant in Emergency Medicine. Uh, thanks for your time, guys. So we're just uh, after having our journal club for the month of October, and we covered four papers. Uh, we jumped from Brazil to Spain to Japan and then back to Spain. Um, so I suppose in times when we can't fly overseas, might as well live vicariously through Journal Club. So let's get stuck into the first paper. Paper one. So the title of this paper, Direct to Angiography Suite Without Stopping for CT Imaging, a Randomised Control Trial. This was a paper which was recently published in JAMA and a study which, was, uh, which comes out of Barcelona in Spain. So just to be brief description of the study, uh, the main objective, as the title would suggest, was to ex- explore the uh, effect of direct angiography suite on clinical outcomes among patients with large vessel occlusion stroke in an RCT. This is a single center uh, investigator initiated prospective study. In terms of population, they included all adults with suspected large vessel occlusion stroke with six hours symptom onset. 147 patients were randomized, with 74 entering the intervention group and direct transfer to angiography suite, and 73 into the control group uh, and direct transfer to CT scan. And the primary outcome was functional dependence as measured by distribution in the seven category modified ranking scale score at 90 days after uh, stroke is in patients with um, confirmed large vessel occlusion. Um, so the results, the primary outcome analysis showed an adjusted common odds ratio of improvement of one point in the modified ranking score of 2.2, favoring direct angiography suite, 95% copped intervals, 1.2 to 4.1, and p-value of less than 0.009. And the author's conclusion from this was that direct angiography suite significantly improved functional independence for adults with acute ischemic stroke compared with direct CT for usual imaging protocols. So what do we think, Peter? This seems to be a well-oiled machine to have up in Barcelona for the last two years. Should every stroke service aspire towards this? Well, it's, a, it's an aspiration. I think um, I think it's interesting. I mean, this is obviously a high-volume stroke centre, probably more high-volume than most uh, centres in Australia anyway. They had started off with two over 2,000 patients, got down to 466 and then actually studied uh, 174. So you're dealing with, uh, you know, a small percent, less than 10% of the stroke patients that are actually involved in this study. So that's the first thing I think that's important. The other thing is, as you say, this is a well-oiled machine, that the patients took almost four hours to get to the hospital, but they were dealt with within within an hour. Um, and, and that's pretty impressive, uh, as they say themselves. Um, you know, compared with most stroke centres. And and then um, there's this issue of uh, what equipment you have in terms of, uh, you know, a, a flat panel CT uh, availability of um, uh, <coughs> angio and availability of expertise 24-7. So I, I think... Um, it's uh, it's a, an interesting study and, and really challenges us, you know, in terms of what we could aspire to. Whether it's applicable to every stroke centre uh, in the rest of the world, I guess, is the question. Um, the, the other thing about this study is it was clear that the, 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 there were some other things going on. And, and one of them was that uh, as well as improved um, rank and scores, 
there were more patients that actually got um, clot retrieval in the intervention arm, as in the director's angio suite, than the, the other group. Mm. And, and this probably results from the fact that they went ahead with the clot retrieval once they're in angio that was virtually 100% versus the, the traditional way of doing it and going to the radiology suite first. So there's something, there's a signal there, but we're dealing with very small numbers in a single centre. And, and I'd like to see a bit more confirmation um, going forward before I recommend it for every stroke centre uh, outside of, of this. But uh, congratulations on the group for doing such an expedited uh, approach to clot retrieval. Um, I'm not sure that we could do it at the at the Alfred where we work, um, and certainly we don't have the infrastructure in terms of flat CT within the angio. Yeah, I found that interesting as well. There's 174 patients for randomised support groups, and there was 292 excluded. I just found it interesting that in a system with a trial like this in the process, it was still vulnerable to this universal issues of stroke care and those being the primary admission off-site, lack of pre-modification and geography not being available. Like, you know, so even in the centre where they were doing this trial, they're still vulnerable to the same stuff that every stroke centre is. Um, Divya, this trial had to be stopped halfway through. Do you think this affects the interpretation of the results? No, I don't think so. I think I mean, it was stopped because of the interim analysis and it showed the benefits and I think um, as Peter said, the limitations were probably from the beginning of the study where only a small number were actually included. And if this is from a large centre um, that sees strokes frequently, I think it'll be hard to replicate in other centres. Um, uh, given the interim analysis and the benefits, of course, they, you know, they would have had to stop it. But um, it's hard to know. Um, with those patients, with the confounding that those patients that went to angiography directly, there's an obvious bias to then continue with clot retrieval. And, and that's where my problem with the study is. It's interesting, the interim analyses. I, I, um, I think unless there's an extraordinarily strong signal, um, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't stop a trial because of interim analysis because it always leaves you with that empty feeling you know, it was almost a good study, but we didn't quite get there. Um, uh, personally, I, I, I think they should have gone on with this study to make it a large, because we're, we're dealing with um, only a small number in each arm. Um, and uh, really to base a whole stroke system on, you know, 80 or 90 patients is, is problematic in my view. If, if we'd had two or three times the numbers, um, I, I would be more confident, I guess, in the study. So, I, I you know, I, I'm not sure what their stopping rules were, but as much as possible in these large trials, it's better if you can avoid stopping early. Paper two. So the second paper we covered was the basics trial out of Brazil. The clinical question that this paper asked was twofold. Number one, in adult ICU patients, does the use of a balanced crystalloid compared to 0.9% saline reduce 90-day all-course mortality? And number two, in adult ICU patients, speedy administration of resuscitation fluids, does the slow uh, infusion compared to a first, uh, fast infusion of a fluid bolus reduce 90-day all-course mortality? 
So like I said, this uh, trial was conducted in Brazil, 75 ICUs, and the data was collected from May 2017 to March 2020, and would follow up to the October 2020 period. The population studied included any patient admitted to ICU with a need for fluid resuscitation, not expected to be discharged the day after admission, and at least one risk factor for API. So two interventions were assessed, uh, the use of a balanced crystalloid and giving a slower rate of infusion at 333 mils an hour if fluid boluses were required. Similarly, two controls were assessed, the use of 0.9% normal saline and giving a rapid rate of infusion at 999 mils an hour if fluid boluses were required. In terms of results, the sodium chloride versus balanced uh, solution, there was no difference in 90-day mortality, 95% confident in those 0.9 to 1.05 with a p-value of 0.47. And then the second outcome, uh, rapid versus slow administration of fluid challenges, there is no significant difference in 90-day mortality, 95 confident in those of 0.96 to 1.11, p-value of 0.46. The authors concluded then, that the use of balanced crystalloid compared to 0.9% normal saline did not reduce 90-day mortality, and the use of slower infusion rates uh, when a fluid bolus is required compared to a faster rate of infusion did not reduce 90-day mortality. So 11,000 patients, 75 ICUs, a third of the trial completed during a pandemic. Divya, are you impressed? I was quite impressed. I think um, a large trial, but there seems to be a controversy that doesn't die. Um, we've had a few trials, um, I think, from 2018 since the original ones, um, and, and we've come to the same conclusion. But there are some uh, issues with the study. Um, I think it was a, a well-constructed study and recruited quite well. Um, however, there were some factors that were probably beyond um, the control of the um, actual um, organisers there, especially, um, you know, it's difficult when patients receive normal saline before they're recruited in the 24 hours before. It really confounds your results if that's what your test is, the saline versus other balanced solutions. Great. Yeah, the limitations, like, I mean, there were, uh, all, uh, there was great in terms of the validity, I thought, of this study, but in terms of, like, a lot of your uh, ICU admissions were planned surgical interventions, so mm. that might request, um, uh, affect mortality as well. Would the limitation of this study um, make you uneasy and continue with balanced foods, Peter? I, I, I thought it was a good study. Um, you know, it's huge. Um, you know, and, and if you ever try to do a study like this, uh, you'll understand <laughs> just how huge this is. Um, they got away with it, but I think there's two things. As Divya says, there's there's the, what was given to them before they entered the study, but also the types of patients. I mean, uh, about forty percent, I think, were surgical, post-surgical, uh, which you know, in terms of an ED audience, um, you know, makes it uh, slightly different. But what it does, I think, is reassure me that really to give a couple of litres of normal saline probably makes no difference whether it's balanced salt or uh, um, saline or whatever, probably doesn't actually make any difference. But, um, and that's sort of good to know because I remember having arguments with anaesthetists, you know, they're getting very upset about giving a litre of normal saline in a trauma patient. You say, you've got to be joking, you know, just give them a bit of volume and uh, they'll get rid of it. And, and this sort of is reassuring that it, it's probably going to make no difference. But it doesn't tell us that if you give you five litres or whatever over 24 hours, it might not make a difference. So I think once you go from sort of an acute volume 
top up, you know, one or two litres to ongoing maintenance and uh, and uh, and large volume resuscitation, I think it's a different story. But for the for the normal initial approach that we'd have in the ED, this is very reassuring to me. Yeah, in terms of the median volumes of fluid administered were very low. I think there was like 1.5 mm. in the first 24 hours. So again, like, I mean, you're not going to see much difference uh, there. In terms of the background to this, so you've got the SMART and SALTED trials, which show the patients who received balanced crystallites had better outcomes than those who received normal saline. And this basics trial had around 4,300 fewer patients than the SMART study. And they only looked at 90-day mortality as their primary outcome. Um, so for me, I wouldn't be throwing out the, uh, the balanced solutions just yet. In terms of the, the, the rate of infusion, if a patient needs fluids, give it to them fast? I think that's a clinical decision. I mean, I think if you've got an old deer who, you know, has a small intravascular volume and a dodgy heart uh, and poor kidneys, you probably want to try titrate judiciously. If you've got a a young trauma patient uh, whose blood pressure is 60 and you're trying to keep them alive till they go to theatre, then giving a litre of uh, saline or plasma light quickly to keep them alive is is probably okay. That's a different uh, argument in some ways, but uh, whether you use hypovolemic uh, resuscitation, but let's say it's sepsis. The other thing, there's a little signal in this paper that was quite interesting uh, about the TBIs, which I thought uh, it was sort of, you know, it's just hypothesis generating, but it does make you wonder that the TBI group has been shown with, um, you know, osmotic solutions and so forth to behave differently. So I think um, there needs to be a bit more exploration about the best way of managing uh, vascular volume for patients with TBI. Yeah, it's an interesting um, hypothesis generating question as well. Did you, does that change your management at the minute in terms of like your management of TBI patients? Would it affect your management? I think um, if physiologically it makes sense and I would be a lot more cautious about giving larger volumes of crystalloid to TBI patients, especially with the, the previous trials proving some benefit. Um, yeah, this study, I think, really just opens um, that debate up and, and for us to be more cautious. I think that's where my practice would be. Paper three. Moving on to the third paper, diagnostic accuracy of lung point of care ultrasound for acute heart failure compared to chest x-ray study among dysmic older patients in the ED. This paper comes out of Japan and is published in the Journal of Emergency Medicine. So in terms of population, they screened all consecutive patients who were assessed for shortness of breath or cough who were 50 years or older and had suspected diagnosis of acute heart failure or COPT exacerbation and only patients evaluated with POCUS were included. So in terms of methodology, this was a cohort study with additional health records review between March and September 2017. The reference standard was discharge diagnosis, ED diagnosis with confirmation by another physician or diagnosis made by health record reviews. The outcome was to determine the classification performance of lung point of care ultrasound compared to chest x-ray study to identify acute heart failure in older patients. The results, uh, sensitivity of POCUS was 92.5% and specificity was 85.7% when identifying acute heart failure, which is superior to this 63.6% sensitivity and 92.9% specificity of radiology reading of chest x-ray. And the author's conclusion state that lung point of care ultrasound performed by emergency physicians in real clinical setting was highly sensitive and specific in identifying acute heart failure 
and at higher sensitivity than had chest X-ray study among older patients with suspected acute heart failure or COPD in their EE stay. So there's a few limitations to this study, Peter. What was your take on this? Yeah, I didn't really like this study much. I think the main issue with this study is the um, is what the gold standard is. And, you know, if the gold standard is what the emergency physicians who did the ultrasound think is the diagnosis, then you're really getting the emergency physicians to basically um, both do the test and say what the diagnosis is and then saying the diagnosis is what the what they said. So it's just not the way you'd want to construct a study. So really, uh, it should have been that uh, the diagnosis was made independently by a separate physician uh, and the ultrasound was undertaken by um, a person who came and did the ultrasound, walked away and said, uh, I think it's A, B or C. So I think... Um, the way it's constructed was almost bound to give the result that um, POCUS was good. Yeah, I think the point was made that there's so many other studies out there which have stronger methodology and um, which show a benefit of ultrasound. Um, David, does it affect your management at all? Um, what's your current management with POCUS and um, shortness of breath this in patients? From my experience and then in my practice, I think it's useful in a subset of patients where we have a high sort of pretest uh, probability um, and then suspicion for heart failure to to diagnose um, a pleural effusion. And occasionally we see something like um, consolidation that would change our management. Um, but this study um, doesn't really sort of give me that much um, confidence in in the design. Uh, I agree that there's uh, better design studies that point to it, but I think this is probably a bit more biased for POCUS, in my opinion. I just found that this paper, they had they initially said that they had 70% of their staff were credentialed in POCUS and only 2% of the patients they screened were included in the study, um, which doesn't fill you with confidence here. But I suppose... Um, focusing the right hands and getting um, a ready diagnosis uh, can be very complementary to the overall investigation. So lots of other papers out there um, affirming that focus can be very useful. So we'll leave that one behind. Paper four. So for the last paper, the title of the study was one versus three week immobilization period for um, for non-operatively treated proximal humor fractures. And the this was published in the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. Uh, and again, we're jumping back to Barcelona in Spain, which is getting a good shout out this week. So the population here this is a single center study. It was conducted between 2015 to 2018 and included all non-operatively treated proximal humor fractures, uh, where there was a greater than 50% contact between the humor head and the diathesis, no glenar humor dislocation or glenoid fracture, no previous intervention on the shoulder and included all patients over 18 years of age. The intervention um, patients were randomized into two groups, group one, the intervention group uh, of one week of immobilization, and the control group were immobilized for three weeks. The main objective study of the study was to determine the differences in pain between proximal human fractures that were treated with one week immobilization. So overall, 111 patients were enrolled in the final analysis. There was no significant differences found between the two groups when it came to pain as measured by the visual analog score at any point, uh, be it one, one week, three week, three months, six months, one and two years. And neither was there any significant difference in the constant score or the simple shoulder test scores between the two groups. Complication rates were also similar. 
And the auditor's conclusion are uh, short and long mobilization periods yielded similar results for non-operatively treated proximal humeral fractures independent of fracture pattern. Um, so Peter, I want to start with yourself. Uh, ask an important question. This is a very vulnerable patient subset um, who really need the use of their shoulder to carry the ADLs. Are you comfortable immobilizing patients for one week based on this study? It's a interesting. It, it's it's an interesting study because they had quite big numbers, um, you know, for this particular um, group of patients. And the main, well, one of the main limitations is which group the orthopaedic surgeons don't operate on and that would vary considerably even at the Alfred uh, let alone between the Alfred and um, and various overseas institutions so I'm not sure about the generalizability between different centers because the patient group it could be quite different uh, but even taking that into account they had you know, over 100 patients, and there didn't seem to be a lot of difference in complications, pain, or anything else. Um, and and the sort of rate of non-union, you know, the things that we fear most of all, things like non-union uh, and and reoperation, were very low. I thought um, so. In some ways, it was sort of reassuring um, that it probably doesn't matter too much what you do with these people if, if you decide they're non-operative. And that's probably, to be honest, that's probably been my practice because, you know, often these people are frail, elderly, sometimes demented, and often, you know, trying to immobilise them uh, is difficult and getting them to follow instructions is difficult. So, uh, and obviously you wouldn't want to immobilise them for long periods of time. So again, and what sort of immobilisation they use, these, uh, you know, there's a, there's a number of sort of, things that I'd like to tease out, but whichever way it goes, it's sort of reassuring that it probably doesn't make a lot of difference. Yeah, just one thing that struck out me, I think all patients got a CT scan of the shoulder as well, which wouldn't necessarily mm. be common practice and would probably give you more of an argument to immobilise them as opposed to going for uh, shoulder um, intervention. Uh, Debbie, what do you think? Does this, is this going to change our practice? I actually liked the study quite a bit. Um, I thought, yeah, this was something that was going to be useful. If you look at the mean age, the sort of 69 to 70 year olds, um, and, and most of them, you know, who need their function and, and to maintain their independence um, before that age group that uh, is mainly in the nursing home. So I think I thought this was really useful, um, especially a, a week of immobilisation. We, I would say we mostly tend to be non-operative um, from what the orthopaedic colleagues do at the Alfred. For the public patients. <laughs> That's true. Um, so at the Alfred, I, I've mostly, I would say the majority of them, at least 75%, unless they're professional athletes or, um, or someone in that age group especially, would be non-operative anyway. And if there are no differences um, with the period of immobilisation, I think restoring the function and rehab earlier would be definitely a better outcome. So I think this is really reassuring. Yeah, I liked it as well. Like, uh, there was no in in a situation where there's no consensus for the optimal management. Uh, it is a greenfield site for research. In terms of um, follow up, I think this paper just really does highlight the the benefit of early follow up by physio and rehab and an ortho OPD appointment. I don't know in terms of generalizability how tightly these patients will be followed up in the community, whether they get like a three-week or a four-week OPD appointment, by which case the complications could be mm. significant and detrimental to the patient. So um, tight follow-up probably um, really does feature here. 
Um, any other points? That's that probably the one the one variant that would be different with, between, say, the public and the private patients, wouldn't it? Get early follow-up and increased multidisciplinary involvement with rehab. And more imaging, yeah. Yeah, sometimes the public ones, depends a bit on which hospital you're at, but sometimes the public ones do get uh, more multidisciplinary input. Uh, sometimes in private they get seen by the surgeon and uh, moved on sort of thing um so it's yeah it it's it's quite variable and there there isn't a very structured pathway for for a lot of these patients mm. and this is keeping in mind that most of these were those minimally displaced fractures so and the outcomes were probably going to be reasonable uh, yeah. anyway yeah yeah, I think the, the, the complication rate was really, really small. Like, yeah, only one patient had an ORIF in, in the second group. Like, so, um, okay, well, that's great, guys. Thanks very much for uh, that. So that concludes our German Club podcast for the month of uh, October. Um, so we'll be back next month with another podcast. So, uh, Peter and Divya, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Well done.